All right, as Jeff mentioned, this is our second lesson of, I think, nine in First Thessalonians. I'll be doing chapter two, the first 12 verses. So I'm going to start by reading that. <clears throat> For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we have proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the theme that I came up with for this text um, is a gospel that is both spoken and lived is a gospel that changes lives. So last week, as, as Jeff mentioned, we heard from Matt how Paul shared the gospel with the Thessalonians and how Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy proved what kind of men they were and how the Thessalonians became imitators of them. And then the Thessalonians became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So this young church of Thessalonica was the real deal in that they received the gospel, they embodied the gospel, and they passed on the gospel. They were the prime example of what a Christian church should be. And Paul recognizes them for this and thanks them for their faithfulness. And so when we come to chapter 2, we hear Paul reminding the Thessalonians that our coming to you was not in vain. How can Paul make such a statement? He's simply reinforcing the fact that something happened to the Thessalonians. They were changed by Paul's ministry. They were changed by the gospel that he was preaching to them. Then there's something just a little peculiar about what follows in verse 2 and the subsequent verses. You might expect Paul to list what those changes to the Thessalonians were. You might expect him to say things like, you all, or y'all. If he was in western Pennsylvania, he'd say, yuns. I'm going to carry on the theme from last week and just use y'all. <clears throat> so we expect Paul to say things like, y'all stopped worshiping idols. Y'all stopped lying and deceiving each other. Y'all stopped stealing and started loving your enemies, and y'all started worshiping the one true God. But he doesn't say anything like that. Instead, Paul describes his life and ministry. And then Paul expands on his ministry to the Thessalonians, specifically regarding how he shared the gospel and what his manner of life looked like. How does he do this? 
Some commentators have noted that 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3 give us a level of insight into Paul's pastoral heart that we don't see in his other letters. He decloses his mind, expresses emotions, and bears his soul. Recall that Paul's previous mission in Thessalonica was cut short by a public riot. We can read the full account in Acts 17, as Matt referenced last week. Some of the Jews that Paul was preaching to were jealous. They gathered some wicked men, as the text says, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar. Things became so bad, and the charges on the missionaries were so serious, that in verse 10 of Acts 17, it says that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Note the word sent. Most translations use this word, by the way. It doesn't say they fled or ran away or retreated. It says they were sent. I imagine there was a bit of persuasion involved in them sending them away, maybe even some arguing about what should be done given that situation. Nevertheless, Paul's critics wasted no time in using this event to try to undermine Paul's authority in the gospel that he was preaching. So for the majority of this text, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, we see Paul defending his conduct in Thessalonica by describing his life and ministry. And it's obvious that Paul is still concerned about the persecution that the church is experiencing. He reminds them that we are destined for this, referring to persecution in chapters three, chapter 3, verse 3, which we will study in a few weeks. You can reconstruct the accusations that Paul's enemies were making by reading his defenses in these subsequent verses of chapter 2. Paul uses these defenses and supports them by listing examples of how he delivered the gospel to the Thessalonians. And these are more than just personal defenses. In them, Paul's telling the story of his ministry to the Thessalonians is a testimony. And he tells it in a way that not only speaks of him, but mostly speaks of Christ. The first defense, he did not speak in error or impurity or by way of deceit, but as God entrusted for his pleasure. As we all know, at any point in history, you'll find examples of false teachers claiming to be followers of Christ. It was no different during Paul's time. It's reasonable to believe that Paul's enemies were accusing him of being one of these false teachers. You can just imagine what his slanderers were accusing him of. He ran away. Things got hard and he just got up and left. He didn't even run during the day. He had to wait until it was dark. What a coward. You want to follow this guy? He's a charlatan, only in it for himself. The money, the prestige, the power, he doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about your welfare. He abandoned you. So in Paul's first defense, he references his suffering and mistreatment in Philippi. He says in verse 2, and I'm paraphrasing, Before I came to you Thessalonians, I was wrongfully accused. I was drugged through the streets. I was stripped naked, beaten with rods, and secured in stocks, and imprisoned. Despite all that, I still came to Thessalonica, a place where I knew there was not just some opposition, what does he say in the end of verse 2, but there was much opposition. So when he uses the word boldness in verse 2, he says boldness in our God, not boldness in himself, not boldness in his team, not boldness in the giant stick that he's carrying, no boldness in our God the God of Paul, and the God of the Thessalonians. I think this is an especially important point, just knowing who Paul is, rather who he was. Paul, as we know, was formerly known as Saul, and he was a ruthless Pharisee. He took pride and probably much pleasure in persecuting Christians. 
Acts 8.1 says simply, and Saul approved of his execution, referring, of course, to the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And later in verse 3, it says, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Do you know what ravage means? You probably do, but I looked it up because it's not a word I use too often. Ravage means to cause severe and extensive damage, to devastate. So it's probably safe to say that Paul wrote the book, or at least a few chapters, maybe even the introduction, a few appendices, on Christian persecution. He knew what he was in for by going to Thessalonica. The boldness that he exhibited wasn't coming from somewhere deep inside. It was coming from God. It was coming from Paul experiencing the awesome, life-changing power of the gospel. Do you recall just a moment ago when I referenced Paul's imprisonment in Philippi? Do you remember how he and Silas got out of there? He didn't make bail. No, there was an earthquake. Acts 16.26 states, The foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And you probably remember what happened next. The jailer woke up, saw the doors were all opened, and was about to kill himself. And Paul said, no, we're all still here. And so he rushed in and saw Paul and Silas sitting there. And he was trembling with fear. And he fell down before them and said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and everyone in his house, and they were all baptized that very night. And then the next morning, the magistrates came and apologized for everything and asked them to leave the city. Folks, Paul didn't fear men. He feared God, the God that brings earthquakes and causes his enemies, who beat him up just hours before, to then come and apologize. Paul wanted to please God. His concerns for pleasing the world did not affect him much. God entrusted Paul with his gospel, and he gave him that faith, that knowledge, and the boldness to take it places where it needed to be. God knows the hearts of men. Paul doesn't. Paul's job was to preach the gospel, and God did the rest. Paul's second defense, he did not speak in flattery motivated by greed, but with gentleness and sacrifice. To say that, something knew, to say that Paul knew something of flattery is an understatement, and we see him reflecting this in his other letters. Reference Galatians, where Paul is speaking to the Galatians about the dangers of preaching and following a false gospel. In Galatians 1 verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And then verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Again, we see Paul referencing his former life as a man who persecuted the early church. And it appears by doing so, as he says here, that he had hidden motivations. Remember, as a Pharisee, he would have claimed to be pleasing God through his persecutions. But the hindsight is clear to Paul that people-pleasing was cruel. It stole his life, his love, and the joy, and he was dead. Of course, the people-pleasers often turn on the flattery as a way to support themselves financially. And this was also probably a common theme among the traveling false teachers of Paul's time. Is it any wonder that even today, the largest, most prosperous churches who claim to follow Christ are the ones that flatter their listeners? 
They fill huge auditoriums with people by proclaiming untruths, like there's no suffering if you're doing things right. You don't need to deny yourself anything. In fact, the focus seems to be too much self. You hear things like your best life now, you can do anything you put your mind to, just be nice to others and think positive thoughts. Paul is the poster boy for the antithesis of the prosperity gospel. He accepted the normalcy of suffering and the persecution that Christ warned us about. He denied himself the comforts that he could have had. From Romans 8.13, Paul writes the words that he lived by. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul wasn't using his ministry as a pretext for greed. He was approved by God, so he didn't have to live that way. Also in verse 6 of our text, Paul references not seeking glory from men. That is, he didn't use his position of honor as an apostle to seek personal glory. Again, he didn't have to. He already had the greatest glory anyone could ever have from Christ in heaven. We get a glimpse of Paul's understanding of God and his glory in John Piper's book, Peculiar Glory, which we all have a copy of, by the way, or should. Positively, all things from him and through him and to him. He is infinitely self-sufficient. He cannot be improved by anyone's gifts or counsel. Instead, he is the fountain of life. He gives to all men life and breath and everything. Specifically, he has come to earth in Jesus Christ to serve and to give his life as a ransom, that is, to have mercy on all, so that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. This is why Paul reached the climax of all God's merciful work with the words, to him be glory forever. This is God's unique glory, to be glorious in the condescension of his transcendent greatness in mercy towards sinful man. Paul was one of those sinful men. He recognized that he was undeserving of any glory outside of his union with Christ. What's also mentioned in this verse is Paul not asserting his authority as an apostle of Christ. The esteem that came from being an apostle would have allowed Paul to literally demand honor and even financial support. This would not necessarily have been wrong or unexpected, but Paul made no demand in this regard to the Thessalonians. The fact that he did not take that which was his legitimate due indicates even more clearly that his motive was not the acquisition of fame or fortune. He chose not to burden the church. The follow-up verse contrasts what may be implied here. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The contrast of a nursing mother with one who demands honor and glory illustrates where Paul's priorities are and the point that he is trying to make. Mothers play important roles throughout their lives. They are caregivers, teachers, advisors, and many, many other things. They should demand honor from their children throughout their lives. But when they first start out, they are nurses to their infant children. A nursing infant is completely helpless. It would not survive very long without the constant care and nourishment from its loving mother. So providing nourishment and the gentlest of care to infants is a noble task and a necessary one. So providing nourishment, and it, <clears throat> but it is not glorious. It doesn't bring fame and fortune. The infant is not in a position to give thanks, let alone honor and glory to the mother. It's telling then that Paul used this analogy to describe his ministerial relationship with the Thessalonians. Mother's milk is the simplest of nourishment in a young infant's life. They need this milk to grow so that they can then consume more complex foods. 
You can't help but think of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 2, where he writes, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So perhaps that applies here as well at the time to the Thessalonians. He knew they weren't ready yet for solid foods. They were just coming into the faith. He knew they required the basic foundations first, presented in the gentlest of ways. What kind of example would Paul have been to these new Christians if he had shown up with his entourage, with the air of entitlement and authority in his wake, demanding honor and glory? It doesn't take much to see that would not have been a good example to set for this young church. Paul did not want anything to detract from his ministry to them and his message that only God is worthy of receiving glory and honor, and that any honor that Paul was worthy to receive was only made possible by his union with Christ. He flout says this in verse 8, Having so found an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. These are not words of a haughty man, proud in his accomplishments, thinking highly of himself because of who he was and what he has done. Rather, it is one who has experienced the deep waters of God's grace, God's miraculous splendor, and the incomparable salvation of his soul that he would put his own life in danger to bring that saving message of the gospel to them so that they might experience it as well. The third and final defense that Paul lists in this text is that he did not burden them, but lived a life worthy before them as an example. Lived a worthy life before them as an example. We just discussed Paul's defense that he never asserted his authority as an apostle. Here he doubles down on the financial aspect of that statement. Even though Paul would have been entitled to financial support as a recognized apostle of Christ, he chose not to pursue this. Instead, he recalls our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There are many implications here. It's a common belief that Paul had some sort of disease throughout his life. He speaks of this in his letter to the Galatians. In chapter 4, 13 of Galatians, he says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. It's thought that Paul's ailment might have been a recurring eye infection. This is supported in verse 15 when Paul testifies of the Galatians' blessedness, where he writes, If possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. We won't get into many of the details here, but it is thought that he had a common ailment for the time, which was called chronic bacterial conjunctivitis. This is a recurring infection to the lining of the eye and would have made it very difficult for him to see. It also would have affected his appearance, making his eyes red and causing them to discharge fluid and other things. It makes my eyes red and watery just thinking about it. Whether or not this is what Paul was referring to as his hardship is unclear, but it's not unreasonable to think so. Paul is a tent maker by trade, so it also also reasonable to believe that this is something he could do even if he had eye troubles. But what a burden this must have been to him. I had pink eye a few times when I was a kid. I don't remember it being anything more than just a nuisance, but then many years later, our oldest son, Ellis, had pink eye when he was in kindergarten and brought it home to us, brought it home to me especially. That was a whole different experience. Ellis was better in a day or two, but my eyes were disgusting. 
They were almost completely swelled shut for about a week. It severely limited what I was able to do while I was infected. And it's one of those experiences that God uses, or has used in my life, to make me appreciate the grace of having all of my sensory organs fully operational. So despite this hardship, Paul says in verse 9 that he labored night and day so as not to be a burden to the Thessalonians. He writes this exact statement again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7-8. through 8. Clearly, Paul believes this to be relevant to this group of people. So I can just imagine Paul sitting outside in the cold, under the moonlight, stitching together the components of a tent while his eyes are watering, can barely see. He's exhausted and worn out from preaching to the Jews in the synagogue all day, retorting their remarks, knowing he was not in friendly territory. The tension was building every day, thinking he probably should go home, get some sleep, because they're going to get hairy really, really soon. Things are going to get bad, and so he has to do this in the morning as well, because, you know, in the afternoon after lunch, he's going back to the synagogue. How much longer can he keep doing this? Well, his statement indicates he probably did this work during his entire time in Thessalonica or at least long enough to support himself. But he did it for two reasons. One, so as not to be a burden, as we mentioned, and two, so as to proclaim the gospel of God. So how does this work proclaim the gospel? Paul mentions work several times in this first letter, so I don't want to spend too much time here, but just briefly mention a few things. In chapter 4, verse 11, Paul urges the Thessalonians to Quote, mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. And then in the subsequent verses, he uses language that would imply that there are some that were idle, refusing to work. They were waiting very patiently for Christ's imminent return. Paul saw this as spiritual sounding covering for laziness. And so he's making this statement possibly as an example to them that there is value in hard work. Paul's other writings clearly indicate that he expected the lazy and thieves alike to find a new work ethic after coming to Christ. In Ephesians 4.28, he writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So we're getting somewhere here. We're to work, not just so we're not a burden to others, but also so we can share the fruits of our labor with others who truly need. But there's more here, and Matt touched on this last week in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul speaks of a labor of love. That is the hard work that we do for our others. Hard work in service of private, selfish ends is not commendable, but selfless, others-oriented, loving labor is. There are so many great examples of this in Paul's writings, and I love this subject, but I can't get to everything this morning. Here's a few passages you can write down for future reference. Colossians 1.29, Philippians 2.12-13, 1 Timothy 4.10, 1 Corinthians 15.58, there's many others. One final thought on this before moving on, though. I believe Paul would be quick to challenge the hardest workers with the truth that, apart from God, our best labors will prove futile in the end. God does not leave us to labor in our own strength. As he writes in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And God's grace is on display in the next aspect of this worthy life that Paul describes. He says in verse 10, 
you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. How is that possible? What point is Paul trying to make here? How can he exhibit devout, upright, blameless behavior? This sounds like perfection. The truth is that Paul was not perfect. He fell short of these expectations, of course. God accepts less than absolute perfection because he accepted absolute perfection already in our place, in Christ. Paul invokes the witness of God as well as the Thessalonians in this statement, so it is to be taken seriously. He is labeling his imperfect conduct as good conduct in light of his union in Christ and offering this up as an example of worthy living to the Thessalonians. The last aspect that Paul mentioned in this section is how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. This is in verse 11. Paul uses these words to describe what a faithful father would do for his children. All three of these words kind of mean the same thing, but not exactly the same thing. Merriam-Webster states the following, exhort means to urge strongly. Encourage means to inspire with courage, spirit, or hope. Implore means to make an earnest request. As a father of three great boys, I can tell you that I probably go a little heavy on the exhortation. But you can see how the next, three, how the next verse makes a choice of these three words just so wise and beautiful. Verse 12 says, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the ultimate goal. As Christians, we want to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls us into his kingdom. We need a Paul that is there to help us. Someone who, like a loving father, will exhort and implore our souls. Everyone needs this, regularly. And Paul stresses this in chapter 4 of this letter that Bobby will be teaching in the coming weeks. Here's just one example of this. Verse 9, chapter 4. 9 and 10 of chapter 4. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. As in chapter 1, Paul again praises the Thessalonians here for extending the word of God throughout Macedonia. And that is a great thing, something not all the churches are doing, by the way, and they are this great example of a loving church. But Paul exhorts them, urges them to do this more and more. You can always do more. Don't give up. The mission is urgent. That's what he's saying. Paul believes that successful churches and successful people need to be exhorted and implored and encouraged to press on and be vigilant in their faithfulness. Regarding encouragement, is there anyone who gets too much encouragement? Of course not. We all need encouragement in the faith. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. But encourage one another day by day, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Note that the word encourage here is exhort in some translations. But the warning is clear. This is one of the reasons we are instructed to be a member of a church body. Here's another helpful verse in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is possible but very difficult to find encouragement when you're separated from other believers for a long period of time. In that same line of thought, it's just as, if not more, difficult when you are part of a group of believers but never hear encouragement. And we keep both of those things in mind. So in conclusion, this was not the last time that Paul would have to defend himself from false accusations. His other letters tell us this. He would go on to have his reputation maligned, his gospel message distorted, his body beaten, his self-imprisoned. But God continued to use Paul's words in the manner in which he lived to further his kingdom. And in the process, he provided us these wonderful lessons for how we should live our Christian lives. This was illustrated in the lives of the Thessalonians, and may it be in our lives as well. So here are some points and questions for us to ponder. Do we desire to be with people for the purpose of pouring the gospel into them? Follow-up question. Do we live a life that would enable us to do that? Second point. Do we aim to exhort and encourage others? I told you this is an area where I need to improve. A third point, Paul was an imitator of Christ. The Thessalonians were changed because of it. Who do we imitate that we might cause change in other people? Point four, in this chapter, Paul is telling us the story of his life. It's a story that Christ wants him to tell. How does Christ want us to tell our story?